all hear me now? I can't wait to hear what I have to say. So we're going to continue in the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 today, but we're going to read verses 10 through 16 to bring us into where we're at. Just remember, when you're reading in the Bible, God is speaking to you as if he was sitting in this room right now. Amen? Because this is his word. So we're going to draw out of the text what is important for us to apply to our lives today so that we can glorify him. So Philippians chapter 2, let's look at verses 10 through 16. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth and under the earth, in that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, it is God who is at work where? In you. Both to do his will and work for his good pleasure. <clears throat> Look at verse 14 through 16. Ouch. Here we go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, I better read that one again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. You're lighting people up, church? Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ a, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So let's tease this apart this morning and unpack it. So I'm going to repeat just one of the verses from last week to bring us back into where we're at, slide five. Paul writing again, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow. Literally, every knee will show honor and respect of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue, every glossa, every person, every language will confess, literally acknowledge and agree fully that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when we dug into this in our last time together last week, What's the first thing that we're going to see happening? Every knee is going to bow. So what's significant about this, Pastor Jack? I'm glad you asked. To bow knee church is to act, it's an act of homage. What does that mean? Homage means to publicly show honor and respect. Do we do that in our lives every day with the Lord? We learned that Paul was quoting the book of Isaiah, which was written about 700 plus years earlier, slide 6. Isaiah writes this. 
turn. The idea of turn in the Hebrew is to turn your face and look at me and be saved. The Hivashihu, be saved. What does that mean? To be delivered and brought to a place of safety. There's safety in Christ, church. And he's saying, all the ends of the earth, for I am El. What does that mean? I am God. I am the true one, literally that El. I am the true one that began it all. There's no other. I have sworn by myself, thy word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord to whom every knee will bow down before him. Look at slide seven. I'm not going to dig into this like you did last week. You can download that sermon from last week. But there are three groups of people that you notice that Paul is writing to in Philippians. Look at those three groups. The first group is those who are in heaven. That's the angels and all the born-again believers that are there before us. The second group are those uh, or, or on the earth. That's both saved and unsaved people. Unsaved people, whether they like it or not, they're going to bow a knee. And then the third group of people are under the earth. Who are they? Well, they're the fallen angels, the unsaved, who are waiting for their final judgment and eternal punishment. So hear me this morning. No matter what glossa, no matter what language you speak, doesn't matter about your nationality or the color of your skin, every human being will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then look at uh, verse 8, slide 8, uh, verse 12. He goes, So then, my beloved, after everything he's been sharing with us since verse 5, that's a term of affection and joy that he has in the Philippian church that he planted. Just as you have always obeyed, just as you guys have always acted accordingly to what's been heard and you've submitted to what's been heard. And you didn't do it just in my presence only, but now listen guys, much more in my absence, work out. Finish and accomplish the work of your salvation with fear. That's the word phobu. It's where we get our word phobus from, or phobias. Being frightened, being on guard, reverence, and trembling. That's where we get the word tremble from. Shaking with fear. Well, how does the NLT put it? Slide 9. NLT puts it this way. Dear friends, you've always followed my instructions when I was there with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important that literally you follow my instructions. So work hard to show the result of your salvation. You're not working to get saved. You're showing the result of being saved. How? By obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So let's tease this apart because we, we need to say, okay, well, how does that apply to my life today? So he says, just as you've always obeyed, that hupkasate, hupo meaning under, akuo, where we get our word acoustics from, means to hear. Okay, so to hear under, to obey. That's the hypocrisate. What does that mean here? That means to place yourself under what's been heard and submit to it and obey it. That's what he's saying. So here he is this morning. If you are truly a follower of Christ, a Christian, a person who has come to this saving faith in Christ alone, then it's clear from the text of these verses that none of us have any business sitting around day after day doing nothing. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying you get saved, just go back, you get fat on the land and watch TV all day. He says, work out your salvation. I want to share something from one of my favorite authors, Paul Washer. What he has to say, slide 11. Look what he has to say about this. Please follow along. In the scriptures, to believe is not limited to an intellectual understanding of certain facts or even an acceptance of them. Instead, to believe is to trust in, rely on the object of your faith to the degree that we base our actions or our behaviors on that belief. Our faith to believe in Jesus Christ is not validated by strength of our verbal confession or even by what we supposedly feel in our hearts. Rather, it is proven true or false by the degree to which his person and his will, that's God's will, that's Jesus' will, determine our actions and direct the full course of our lives. Are you under the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit to direct your life? Or are you following what the world's trying to get you to do? Very important statement that Dr. Washer makes there, church. So he says, work out, katerzome. What does that mean? Listen, Paul is not telling those Philippian believers, or you and I, to earn your salvation by working for it. That's a works-based religion. That is not Christianity. In simple terms, what he's sharing here is an ongoing command that you and I are to follow and keep on working and living out being saved until that is completed, until the Lord takes us home. There's no exceptions. He actually says in slide 12, Utah, your own. Again, it does not mean that you were to work for it so that you'll be saved. Again, Paul wanted the Philippian believers, as well as you and I, to live out and show people that we're saved by our actions, our character, our behavior. So if you're already saved, you are to be serving the Lord and sharing the gospel, using the gifts that he's given you to bring glory and honor to him. That's living out your salvation on a daily basis. And again, it's not coming to church on Sundays. It's living it out where you work, your friends, your family, your parents. Do they see the hope that's in you? Do they see something that's different inside of you? So then, since God has saved you, you and I should be obeying him and serving him. How? Well, look at slide 13. With fear and trembling. Does this mean that God wants you and I to serve him with this paralyzing fear? That he wants you to be shuddering in your boots and trembling? That's the word tremolo? Well, let me share what MacArthur has to say about that. This is not a fear of being doomed to internal torment. That's not the phobia or phobos he's talking about in the text. Nor a hopeless dread of judgment that leads to despair. It is rather a reverential fear, a holy concern that you and I are to give God the honor that he alone deserves and avoid the chastening of his displeasure, whom the Lord loves, he will discipline. Such fear, this is a healthy reverential fear, protects us against temptation and sin and gives us the motivation for obedience and righteous living. We find that same teaching some 3,000 years ago regarding this all the way back in the book of Proverbs where Solomon 
is writing this kind of teaching to his son, who was maybe 18, 19 years old at the time. Slide 14. So Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. That's when you're open and you have the humility to listen to what he says and walk with him and learn and grow with him. Okay? He says only fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you want more on that, you can get my book. <laughs> Slide 14. NLT. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So the Hebrew word for fear, the word hiara, actually is used some 14 times throughout Solomon's writing in the book of Proverbs. That is the same thing. That means reverence, meaning a deep and profound love and respect for God. There's that awe, that, that reverential fear. And Thomas Wace, in his commentary, says this about fear as, he's, as it's used in Proverbs. And then you can see how Scripture validates Scripture. So Dr. Wace says, God must be the object of our fear, not as dreading his wrath, but with reverential respect and awe before him, with holy jealousy, careful not to offend him, and in all his worship and ways, solicitous care and concern, we are to please him. Do you get up in the morning and you think about, Lord, how can I please you and honor you today? How can I show you to people that there is hope in this God-forsaken, horrible world we live in? So Paul, church, as well as Solomon, they are both teaching us that we need to recognize who God really is and give God alone the honor and respect and authority that is to do him alone. So if we truly fear the Lord, and think about it, do you truly fear the Lord? We should want to submit to him and obey him. It's amazing when people are in the hospital and they're in a real crisis and their life may end. It's amazing how all of a sudden when they realize that, hey, this could be my last time here, how all of a sudden there's this fear. And usually that fear is because they have no hope. And the reason they have no hope is because they don't know the Lord. So if they really truly know the Lord and they draw their last breath here, they already know that they're going to pass from here into glory. The question you need to ask yourselves is, do you have that kind of reverential fear and love for the Lord? And if you truly say you love the Lord, does it really show up? So, as Cindy already has a slide up, do we really fear him? Do we have that reverential respect and awe of him? Ask yourself this one. Do we have a deep and profound love for him? So if we say we do love him, how's that showing up in your walk? How's that showing up in the way you talk to people? Is it, you know, is our talk throughout the day hurling out profanity all the time? Is it talking about how horrible and terrible things are? So if we say we do love them, is it showing up in our life, church? Now here in the Old Testament as well as in the New, fear meaning again respect and all, that is the correct response that you and I are to have in the presence of Holy God. We are to have a contrite heart. And listen, here's the hard part for us. God doesn't want some of your life. He wants all of your life to follow him. 
You know, our, our hearts are not this place where there's about 15 different doors in there with compartments in there. And Lord, you can, you can go into this part of my life and this part of my heart here. I'm opening a door. But Lord, these I want to keep for myself still. That's not truly following him, church. So we are to have that contrite heart. We are to yield our lives over to him. And everything we should do should be in grateful acknowledgement of who he is. So think about the past week. Has most or all of your behavior been something that acknowledges him as God in your life? You know, we should always be aware of our own shortcomings and sin. So hear me this morning. We all know that the world we currently live in, with its temptations and trials, is very strong. And let's be, all, let's be really raw and honest this morning. Our flesh is weak. You know, we drive to the McDonald's and we want the meal done before we even get there. We want things the way we want them. DoorDash, Grubhub, we want it delivered now. I ordered it, why isn't it here two seconds later? We want everything our own way. So MacArthur goes on and says this in slide 17. Such fear involves self-distrust, a sensitive conscience, being on guard against temptation. It necessitates opposing pride and being constantly aware of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, as well as the subtlety and strength of our inner corruption. That's a tough one, isn't it? We don't like looking inside ourselves. It's much easier to look at somebody else than look at our own hearts. So is this all done alone? Well, look at, look at slide 18 and 19. Here, here's the good part for us. It is God who is at work, that's the word ergon, that, that means working. It is God who is working, the way that is in the Greek, that is a present active verb, which means it is God who is constantly working in you, if you're saved, both to do what? To do his will, meaning to his determinations, his purposes, his choice, and for his good pleasure. And the NLT puts it this way, slide 19. It is God working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We can't do it on our own. We can white-knuckle it, especially those struggling with addictions. We can white-knuckle it thinking, I can conquer this on our own. I'm telling you, you can't. You can't. If you could, there wouldn't be an addiction clinic anywhere in the world. You can't do it on your own. Get it through your head. Get it in your heart. If you really love the Lord, you're going to do what's necessary to bring honor and glory to Him and to do what pleases Him. But the nice thing is, God the Holy Spirit permanently indwells the believer to do that. So one way to know you're truly saved, one way to know you're truly born again, is that you will notice inside you that you have a desire to want to please Him and honor Him. Do you have that desire to please and honor him in your heart? Before you're making decisions to do things, are you running it through prayer? Lord, is this your will for my life? You see, if he's really indwelling you, your desires, church, begin to change away from only serving self because they're replaced with his desires for your life. 
that is a way that you can really tell. You may be thinking to go this way, and God says, no, I have this over here for you to do, and you yield to him. So if the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, hear me this morning. He begins to use that great ginseng that he calls the word of, called the word of God, and he begins to change your away from your self-serving life to a desire to want to serve him and please him because the text says here, it is God who is at work in you. Literally, that word there is where we get our English word energy from. He's the one that energized you. And here in our area, we have this very powerful nuclear power plant that my father-in-law was part of the building process of. He was one of the engineers there. What does that nuclear power plant do? It creates electricity for the entire region. It is a source where most of our region gets its power to keep these lights on right now. And our homes and businesses would not function without that power supply, would it? Our homes wouldn't. So what does Paul say? God is the one who is our energizo, our power source. He is the one that stirs you and energizes you and the heart of every believer to want to do his will. He's the one that empowers you to be able to do it. Human power alone could never accomplish the work God has, and yet he uses broken, frail, born-again technology or children to accomplish his purposes because he is the one that energizes. He's the one that energizes and stirs you. Notice from the text that it is God who has also initiated the relationship. He says to do what? To will, slide 20, and to work, to, to do his determined purposeful choices, and he's the one that does the work, the energizing. So hear me this morning. This isn't so much about obedience and following a bunch of laws. Now, if you really dig into the heart of Paul in the text, listen to me this morning. Church, it's about you and I living a transformed life that glorifies Christ. Are you doing that? God uses his stirring. He uses his energy to empower you and I to what he wants you and I to do for him. But if we're too busy watching 17 hours of TV and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that, and, and, and that's crowding the word of God out of your life, you're basically shutting the conversation down. It's like you're putting your phone on mute. He's talking, but you ain't hearing. So think about it. He's the one that empowers you to do what he wants. He is the one who is constantly working in you and I to accomplish his purpose. So he's not just leaving you alone and abandoning you. So if we're born again, it should be evidenced by a radical transformation that God the Holy Spirit does. Look at slide 21. Here's some questions I want you to think about. And I know these are tough. I know they're hard to fit in your ear. How often do you and I find ourselves neglecting or ignoring his stirring? You can maybe sense that he's stirring, but you want to do this over here. Pastor Jack, I, I want to buy that thing now. My credit's in the toilet, but they'll give me a 29% interest rate so I can buy it now and pay 10 times the amount of money for it. Don't wait. I know none of you all have ever done that. How, how often do we find ourselves being complacent? God has a thing for us to do, but we're sitting there with the channel changer. 
Uh, now I'm watching TV. Uh. How, how often do we find ourselves going about on our own business to serve our own self-interest instead of God's? Think about it. How often do we find ourselves doing that? Here's another one. How often do we choose material things or social activities over following a stirring in our hearts to serve him? Think about that. Materialism is choking the life out of so many people because you are bombarded an average of 33 hours a week with commercials on your TV and on your Facebook page and on your Instagram page. Flip, 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 you know. You are bombarded with materialism. Get it now. You know, buy this product and it's going to make you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was 18 years old. You know, all of this nonsense, church. And yet the Word of God could be sitting in your house, but we don't open it up because we're too busy because we want, we want to pamper ourselves. Oh, it's getting quiet now. So what happens? In reality, we find ourselves acting out this way, and we actually hurt our own growth, and we choke out the intimacy that Christ wants with us. What a horrible thing to do. Keep in mind, church, that Paul wrote this to the Philippian church. Why did he write it? Well, even going through the book of Philippians, he wrote it to the church so they would apply their being saved to the problems that their church was facing at that time 2,000 years ago. Just like most church today, they were struggling with selfish ambition, pride, ego, strife, and that was dividing the church. And again, we see those same problems dividing churches today. And Paul says this is all being done for his good pleasure. Yodikeos. His enjoyment, his satisfaction. Think about this for a moment. Even when we rebel against him, we dishonor him, curse at him. He didn't do things our way, so we don't like him anymore. So we walk away from him. He is still choosing of his own free will to bless those who are his children. Because you know what? He's modeling patience for us. Are you patient with people? You're patient at the traffic lights? Mm, uh-oh. You know, the Westminster Standards say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So for reasons, church, we may never understand until you and I enter into glory with him, it brings him satisfaction and pleasure to what? Sanctify his own people. Slide 22. Are we glorifying him? Meaning, are we setting him apart as Lord in our life? Or is there something else hijacking your heart that has kicked God off the throne in your heart and you or something else is sitting there and God is over here in the wings? Look at slide 23 and 24. Here's the fun part. Because you're all sanctified and you're all, you don't need this. Do all things without. Do all things apart from and having the absence of grumbling. Gugusaman. Grumbling. What? Behind the back undertone of complaining about someone in an annoying way. Uh-oh. Or disputing. That's the word uh, dialogamos. That's where we get our word dialogue from. As it's used here, it's disputing or a heated debate about something or quarreling. So do things without grumbling, quarreling. 
do everything without complaining and arguing, slide 24. So Paul is giving the Philippian church here, as well as you and I, he's giving us a way that we can work out or live out our salvation. So what is he telling this church to do and us? We need to intentionally work at not complaining and not arguing with each other. Uh-oh, got quiet again. Ouch. You know, complaining and arguing, backbiting, screaming, cursing, yelling, freaking out should have no place in any church at all. Paul is very clear on the matter. And it carries the force in the, real, in the original language of this here, because the way it starts out in the Greek, it's actually a command. Paul's not saying if you think about it or feel about it. He's, he, this is a command. He's saying do not do any of that. See, complaining, as you all know, leads to turmoil. It leads to animosity. It leads to bitterness. It leads to gossip. It leads to backbiting. How could that behavior ever bring glory to God? Just consider for a moment how grumbling and complaining brought really tough judgment on the people of Israel. Look at slide 25 and 26 and follow along with me. It's actually slide 25 through 27. So here we are. We have the children of Israel. Could have been in the promised land two weeks. And, and, and nothing's ever enough for them. Just like us today. So what's it say? Then they set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came into the wilderness of Sion, which is between Elam and Sinai. It was on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So about two months out from when they were delivered from Egypt. But the whole congregation, just two months out, of the sons of Israel, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Sons of Israel said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, we ate bread until we're full. Not thinking about the beatings and whippings and slavery. You brought us into this wilderness to kill the entire assembly with hunger. <coughs> Slide 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The Lord's patient, even with all the grumbling and complaining. I'm going to handle the deal. I'm going to handle it for you, guys. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? They didn't go to, you know, Redner's or Walmart and buy 10 weeks worth of food. This was a gather of each day's portion so that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily because there's a day of rest, the Sabbath. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, At evening, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now they already knew it. They weren't there anymore. They've been about two months out. And in the morning, you're going to see the glory of the Lord. For here's your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we? That you are grumbling against us? Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning, 
For, Lord, here's your grumbling, which you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Ask yourself, how often do you shake your fist and curse God out because he doesn't give you what you want and you mumble and complain and groan against him? We look at that and we're like, oh, how could they saw all these miracles? They, you know, didn't matter. Well, I'll believe Pastor Jack if Jesus comes here in a chair. No, you don't. They saw miracles. They saw all kinds of things. They were delivered. And you know what? They're about eight weeks out. And what are they doing? They're mumbling and complaining. All of the horrible things they went through, they didn't care because they had the pots of meat. Their bellies were full. Is that all God is? Just a breakfast, lunch, and dinner to us? Hear me this morning. The person who is always complaining and always seems to find things to argue about is not working out or living out their, his or her salvation. I want you to consider just some of the results. What happens when someone is always complaining? I want you to look at slide 30 and, 30 and 31. Look at slide 31. Why does God forbid complaining and arguing? Why? Well, it hurts people. Think about this, and I've said this before. Are other people's names safe in your mouth? Ask yourself that honest question. You know, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. Oh, la, 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 la. You know, oh, look at all this. Grumbling and complaining hurts people, and it damages and it chokes and kills relationships. It divides people. It divides marriages. It tears families apart. And it opposes God's will, church. It hinders growth in people's lives. They're not seeing the real joy of the Lord in you if you're always complaining about something. You're supposed to put them on display that my life is not the way it used to be after I came to a saving faith in Christ. And it misleads people. And it's self-centered because it elevates you here and it puts the people you're complaining about or whatever here. It says, look at me. I'm the judge. It elevates our self-opinions. And it pushes people away from Christ and church. Well, they don't act any differently than the people outside of the church. Why do I want to go there? They're acting just like the people where I work or this, that, and the other. So what does Paul say to them as well as you and I in verse 15? He wants you, if you are truly born again, to prove yourself to be blameless pure, faultless, without blemish, and innocent, harmless, unmixed. We're going to look at that unmixed in the morning, this morning in a moment. Children of God that are above reproach, without blame and blemish, in the midst of this crooked, literally warped, dishonest. That's where we get the word scoliosis from, that's scolia. Something that's twisted and not working right, dishonest, immoral, perverse. What does that mean? <clears throat> corrupt. That's where the liars come in. Opposing what is right. Twisted. A generation among whom you are to appear as lights. Luminaries in the world. And slide 30. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Boom. Right there. Does that define us this morning, church? 
See, Paul is using terminology that they would have understood 2,000 years ago. That word blameless, meaning pure, faultless, without blemish. What would have come to the mind for those living back in Paul's day? Consider what the Jews back in the Old Testament times brought to the priests as a sin offering. Look at slide 31. I want to make sure that you can see Paul is drawing from all of this wisdom that he has from the Old Testament. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring an offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. <clears throat> he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb a year without defect. For a burnt offering and one hue lamb, a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering. So then the idea that Paul was trying to get across to these people here, these followers of Christ, they should be people who are above any legitimate blame or criticism. Think about it. A burnt offering for a defect, for sin offering, and for a peace. Okay? They should be blameless. There shouldn't be any legitimate blame or criticism. If you're honest in your dealings with money, you're not like, I'm going to work under the table. I'll get that government. That's okay. Forget Romans 13, 1, let every, you know, that we should render under Caesar what is Caesar, that we should, you know, honor the government. He then says something else. He says blameless. Then he uses the word innocent. Okay? Akareo, guiltless, harmless, unmixed. Now, we look at unmixed. Okay, well, unmixed. Okay, what does that mean? The idea of being unmixed. Well, see, back in that day, they crushed all the grapes to make wine. They didn't mix anything in with the wine. They didn't put water within the wine to dilute the wine. Okay? So they would have understand, oh, okay, unmixed. Well, we, we know what he's talking about. We, we're not putting anything there in to dilute the wine. So take a moment and ask yourself this. How do we, we, we want to draw that out and say, okay, how does this work for you and I today? How does it work for us today? Look at slide 33. Am I diluting my walk with the Lord by watching things with my eyes that I should not be gazing at in the first place? Am I diluting my walk with stuff that I'm choking in, down in my body with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and all that? Is my walk being diluted by the things of the world, hijacking my heart, getting in the way of my walk to honor Christ? They knew what diluted wine was. It wasn't the same. It didn't have the same consistency or taste. It didn't have the same effect. A am I diluting my walk with getting drunk or high? I want to suck with the bottle or your family. Just one more drink and you'll forget all about it. Am I diluting the way I talk with gossip or lying or profanity? Am I making my life full of impurity and yet calling myself a Christian. So my question for all of us, me included, is what's diluting my walk with the Lord that I need to repent of? What do I need to repent of? Church, hear me this morning. 
We are to live out our lives under the watchful eye of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord watching us when we go to and fro. You know, you can do all this stuff in secret and black back alleys, but you, it's just as bright as day when God sees you doing it. You and I are called to be luminaries in the Greek there. By the way, the, the Greek word that he uses there is the word phos. Uh, it's not the word lumens. You know, we used to talk about we bought a light bulb would have so many lumens and that would determine its brightness, right? But those bulbs burn out, right? But the word that he's using here is the word phos. And what's interesting about that word, that's a light that was never kindled and a light that can never be quenched. It's a light that always is. He lit you up for a purpose. So we are to handle that. We are to be shining lights in a warped, dishonest, immoral, perverse world. That led me to think about this, and I'm just about done. Look at slide 34 and 35. Integrity. What does that word integrity mean? If somebody asked you to give them a definition of that, I want you to think about what would come to your mind. You see, the word here, the actual definition, the word is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. There are things you're just not going to participate in. And, and integrity, it stems from the Latin, which is integer, which means whole and complete. An integer is not a fraction. It's here, it speaks of an inner peace or an inner sense of wholeness. And there's a consistency in your character. And that consistency in your character grows when you build the word of God into your life and let it shape the way you think and talk and act and behave so that you're lit up for a purpose. So when you think about that slide 35, I want you to think about integrity for a minute. When you are in integrity and you're living out integrity, people should be able to visibly see through your actions, your words, your decisions, your methods and outcomes. You are a whole and consistent you. There's, there's not a fraction of you here or there. You, you bring the same you wherever you are, regardless of the circumstance that you're in. Your you doesn't change. You don't leave parts of your life behind. I'm going to church, so I better look churchy today. You don't, if, if you're a person of integrity, you don't have to work, have a, like a work you and a family you and a social you. You are to be the same you all the time. How does that happen? You walk with the Lord. So if you're truly a born-again Christian, your responsibility is to have a major impact and influence on the ungodly world around you. I, I want, you to want you to think of one more thing. You, you're, you're being a person of integrity, and there's somebody that you work with, and you share the gospel with them. And that person comes to a saving faith in Christ. He's married. He has little kids. Do you realize that your being faithful shapes the whole future of that family? That marriage, those children? Do you realize that those kids may end up in glory because way back here, years ago, you were faithful and you swallowed your pride and you weren't afraid of being ridiculed and you shared Christ with someone? And their whole life changed? That's pretty powerful, don't you think? Yeah, only 18 more slides to go. No, I'm kidding. Slide 36, two, three to go and we're done. So Paul says, holding fast. Holding fast. Epikonetes, holding fast. What does that mean? Pay attention. 
retain, hold out and share with others. What? Hold out and bear the word. He has it right in the text. It's the verse 16. Holding fast the word, the logon, the scriptures, the eugelion, the gospel of life. And that's not the word bias there where you get your English word biology, looking at plants and all. That's the word zoe. That, that word zoe as it's used here, now listen, that word zoe there means existence without end. It's eternal life. You're holding fast the word of eternal life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I'm going to have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or told in vain. His work with that church wasn't something that, oh, look how they ended up. Do you realize you carry God the Holy Spirit in you? And this is not the end? This is not the end. He's not using the word by us there where that plant lives and then it dies and then it plants a seed. He's using the word Zoe there. That's, that, that has the idea of eternal life there, a quality of life. The NLT puts it this way. Hold firmly to the word of life, then on the day of Christ's return, Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. I'm letting you know that right now. The Bible teaches he's coming back for his church. Paul says, you know, on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I didn't run that race in vain and that my work was not useless. Well, that's powerful, don't you think? <clears throat> we'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what is the day of Christ Jesus? What is Paul telling us here? And back in Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, we'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the day of Christ Jesus is the completion of history when Christ returns and brings relief, resurrection to the believers. And he wants all of us to be encouraged by this. We tend to think this is all there is. We get so tunnel vision that this is all there is. This is a blimp in eternity. This is like a flicker in eternity. Consider what Paul says later on. And we'll, we'll, as we go through Philippians, we'll, we'll get to this. But back in chapter 3, 21, Paul says this. Who will transform, metamorphe, change the condition and form of the body of our humble, our vile state is going to be changed into conformity with the body of his glory. It means you're going to get a glorified body. You're going to not need to worry about taking these pens of injections to lose weight, you know. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So as I close, hear me this morning. I'm hoping as we've dug into this, we can see the importance of living our lives guiltless, harmless, and unmixed with the corrupt world we live in. Maybe we need to stop diluting our walk and start paying attention to where we're going. Because listen, sin generates consequences. I, I hope that we all see the importance of, listen, Dr. Carter and I have been saying this for 20 years. I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, saturate your mind with this. This is the thing that gets the impurity out. This is the thing that does it. This is the thing that transforms this, metamorphase this. I can tell you in my own life, you, I could have sinned you all under the table before the Lord got a hold of me. I, I made Satan blush sometimes. I'm begging you, get into this. 
five or six minutes a day. Get into this. Let God speak to you through his life-giving word. This is an eternal word. This is not going to go away. Uh, this is a Zoe word. Amen? Bow your heads this morning. If you are here this morning...